everyone, and thank you for joining us for another episode of That Solo Life, the podcast for PR pros and marketers who work for themselves. I am Michelle Kane. I am here as always with my wonderful partner, Karen Swim of Solo PR Pro. And today we are thrilled to be joined by another wonderful guest. Today we have Annie Singer, and she is the founder of Recipe. Uh, we're going to talk about marketing research. We know it's an important tool for public relations professionals, especially in this data-driven age. And Annie founded Recipe in 2021 after leaving her full-time job as director of marketing for bestreviews.com. I'm sure there was a little research going on there. Yeah. Um, Annie has worked extensively with both recipe bloggers and food brands as an SEO consultant, copywriter, and strategist. Her deep knowledge of user experience, design, and SEO, combined with direct insight into the work and resources that bloggers commit to making their content successful in Google search, makes Annie uniquely qualified to tackle this problem in a way that is fair to creators and consumers alike. We are thrilled that Annie's going to be here to chat with us about a few fundamentals of marketing research that anyone can and should use. So we'll talk about some common mistakes, how to do research even with small budgets, and some traps to avoid. So well, Welcome, Annie. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. yeah, we're so glad. And anyone who's worked with food brands, I feel like if you work with food brands, you probably do anything in life. Um, <laughs> some people would say that the industries I work with are hard, but food brands are hard because you're dealing with, you know, changing consumer preferences and just all kinds of issues. And especially during this global pandemic. And I just, that's hardcore. Yeah. It's fast moving. <laughs> That's yeah. for sure, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't know how you keep up with it, but uh, <laughs> I'll well, eating food. <laughs> you know, and, and as we were just chatting about off air, you know, our audience, our PR pros, you know, some of us are super well-versed in doing market research and some of us just don't have occasion to do it in our work, but it may come up. So I guess you know, kick us off with the fundamentals, you know, what are, what are a few of the core fundamentals that we should know? Yeah, so I think, you know, my, my perspective is that marketing research is for everyone, which isn't necessarily the prevailing attitude. Um, And especially when you get into the marketing research industry, it can feel a little bit like exclusive and elitist of, to do marketing research, you have to be a marketing research professional. If you're not, you know, nothing is going to be worth anything. And I don't think that's true. And I think we can simplify it for, for people who are at the beginning, who have not done research before. Just shift your perspective of anytime you're talking to a customer, that's marketing research. Anytime you're talking to a client, that's marketing. Take that approach and, you know, collect that data in your head and take notes as you're having conversations with clients and all of that kind of stuff. Because, you know, it doesn't always feel like data when you're gathering qualitative information, which is, you know, when when you're speaking with people and asking questions and asking open-ended questions, that is data that you're getting back in. And so, you know, treat it as such and take note of it and then reference that later. And then, you know, if you're ready to take the next step, really research is for any time you have a business question. And as a PR professional, you can use this to solve your own business problems. And then you're also going to be working with clients and you can gather valuable data, 
you know, to publish and to make it enticing to publish information about your clients. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think, Annie, you just hit on something that I really want to explore a little bit and get your take on it, because you said that marketing research was fundamental in how you built your own business. Yes. I think, you know, far too often our solo PR pros, we do not build our brands intentionally. We just get to work and we roll up our sleeves and we start working. But I'm really interested, share some ways that we can use marketing research to build our own businesses. And, you know, whether you're starting from ground zero or you've been around a long time, now would be a good time, I think, with the economic uncertainties and the market just shifting and all of these, you know, the great resignation, I think it's a good time to really look at that. Like what ways can I find out what problems I should be solving and maybe tweak my offering? So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So my personal experience, my company is like a two, it's almost like a social network or think Hulu plus or, you know, YouTube plus YouTube, whatever you call the YouTube version, YouTube red, but for recipes. So when when you're cooking at home, you you want a chicken recipe for the air fryer, you're going to go to Google and type in air fryer chicken recipe. And the things that come up are 99% of the time going to be food blogs. But when you're a home cook, there are a lot of frustrations with the experience of food blogs. And this is sort of how the, the idea, it was like a shower idea or a kitchen idea for me personally, because I'm at home cooking. And I'm like, this is such a frustrating experience. There are pop-ups, the pages are slow to load. You know, there's 12 paragraphs of text before you get to the, like, you know, the everyone who's cooked at home from an online recipe, you know, the experience. And so I was, you know, just, I'm the consumer. I am like, why is this experience the way it is? And I, you know, was frustrated. And this was just an idea in my head for six months or a year of why hasn't this problem been solved? And so what I did was I started talking to people and I talked to my friends and family and they cook at home too. So in some senses, they are my target audience. And so I, you know, talk to them, what is your experience? Like, and I see in your faces and in your, (laughs) your laughter that you have experienced it. Yes. Um, Yes. So that was really like validating, you know, not, not have you, (laughs) you I mean, it's validating of the idea. Yeah, yeah. It's like we, we like here's my kid playing with a cute toy. Oh, yeah. here's my dog looking at me in the kitchen. Here's the picture of a pretty yeah. dog. You yeah. want is can I get the ingredients in the directions? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Do I at any point in this post, like, do I really have to scroll for ten yeah. minutes? Pass all the pretty pictures, and the pretty pictures are nice. I love food pictures. Yeah. But I can go on Instagram or Pinterest for food pictures. Like, I yeah. want the recipe. Give I, I don't, me. Yeah, I don't I don't need to hear about the soft spring air wafting yeah. through the window. Reminded yeah. me of my days in third just how much chicken do I need? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Can I make this in 20 minutes? Really, your creativity, but yeah. What really turned it into a business idea was that then I went and talked to creators, the food bloggers behind the recipes, and their perspective was sort of enlightening because people have tried to solve startups have been trying to solve this problem for more than a decade like since food blogs have been around and since food blogs have been monetized by advertisements people have been trying to solve this problem and so what's really enlightening is that food bloggers are very frustrated with the general experience as well because we're talking about it user experience is sort of the marketing term 
Um, but the experience home cooks have on the website, they know it's not objectively the best experience that they could have. But bloggers put, you know, 10, 20, 30 hours into each and every post. And the way they earn money is you have to scroll past as many ads as possible. That's how they earn more and more money. And, you know, in search engines, there's the, the thought that longer form content, if you have more text, if you're answering more questions about right. chickens and air fryers, you're going to get viewers for free. I mean, it's the time spent for free from Google. And so yeah. they're stuck in these constraints of I have to, you know, optimize for search engine optimization, SEO, or I'm not going to get eyeballs on my content. And once I do get eyeballs on my content, I need to make them pass by multiple ads in order to earn any revenue from it. And, you know, they're frustrated with the fact that they have to bog down their website. They get comments that are really just ferocious and mean and unnecessary, like, because as cooks, we're really frustrated with the experience. And, you know, people, if you're having a bad day, maybe you're going to lash out and it's, you know, not the appropriate thing to do and you're targeting a human being on the other end, a lot of the time food work is inherently cultural and historical and familial. And so, you know, a lot of the time people are authentically sharing stories of their family and it's meaningful to them. It's not necessarily functional to the person cooking the recipe right now. And so the expectation doesn't always meet up. But you know, when people are saying, I don't want your life story, just give me the ingredients. That's really doesn't feel good to creators who are pouring their hearts into it. And so, you know, through my research, interviewing people, and, you know, I've gone back and forth by email, talked to dozens and dozens and dozens, and, you know, probably close to 100 food bloggers, creators. And that helped me, you know, understand how I want to solve this problem, where in the past, people have tried to solve the problem by creating scraper tools for home cooks, you put in the URL to the recipe that you want to cook, it returns you with the ingredients and the directions. And that completely cuts out creators from the process, stealing their content, basically, if you're, you know, some of them allow you to save it to your cookbook on their platform. So you're essentially stealing copyrighted materials that people have put hours and hours into creating. Um, so none of you know the scraping tool type things have really taken off. Like it's not the standard way that we experience recipes online. And I think that's because we've neglected you know the other side of the equation. We've just <laughs> left the other side of the equation out when they're really important to the online ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So my approach is that, you know, it's more like Hulu Plus or Spotify Plus, where, you know, we pay creators for the use of their content, and people are paying monthly memberships for a premium experience of recipes online. And so really, that idea only came about, like, I only was able to understand the full picture of things by talking, you know, first to other consumers or home cooks, and then secondly, actually going to creators and talking to creators, I ran some small scale surveys, I found out I think 72% from the data I collected 72% of food bloggers don't feel like they earn a fair wage for the amount of time they put into their blog. And you know, it was it was 3040 people. So it's not a hard statistic fact of the industry, but that's yeah. significant that, you know, yeah. they're not happy with it. And those who reported that they are happy with the amount of money they earn, they monetize with ads, sponsored posts. So a brand comes to them and has a paid placement 
and affiliate links. Mm. And when you think about the online experience, everything you add, every form of monetization starts degrading and degrading the experience for users. And so it's, you know, you get to these big popular blogs and they're so frustrating because they have to monetize in, you know, four different ways in order to earn a fair wage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I want to just call out some numbers really quickly. When you're doing research like this, you know, a couple of things stood out. You didn't use a big fancy research firm. You didn't pay Mm -hmm. somebody, you know, $20,000 to do this. And your sample size was small, but it was significant to your particular mission. And I think that sometimes when people think about data and surveys, even for client purposes, you're thinking about these massive surveys, but a good survey can have 150 um, respondents. That is a significantly, it's statistically significant enough for you to use that data to then garner coverage and to share it. So it doesn't have to be 10,000 people said this. So I love that. And I think that that makes a lot more accessible to people who are like, well, I don't have the budget or the time. Um, And, you know, it can be even smaller. If you're creating a course and you talk to 20 people that are your target market, get the information that you need from those 20 people. You don't have to talk to a hundred people. Yeah. And distribution is also important here because how do you get your, how do you get people to take your survey? And I struggled with that at first because, you know, coming from a more traditional, you know, academic type background where they're there, it was an applied program. So they're training me to be, uh, you know, professional marketing researcher. And mm-hmm. halfway through the, the educational program, the degree, I was like, well, I'm not going to be a marketing research professional. I know that for sure. But, you know, I took a lot from the program and it's helped me a lot in my career. So you know, I was thinking like distribution platforms, like yeah. there are survey groups on, you know, on Facebook, you can go mm-hmm. and you take people's surveys and they take your surveys and, you know, thinking that way. And what ended up working for me was sending cold emails, you know, food bloggers have their inform they have contact information publicly online, I am personally sending the email, I'm not scraping and putting it into a tool and sending mass emails, yeah. you know, but introducing myself saying, Hey, I'm working on this project, you know, will you take, take the survey, give me some data. Um, yeah. And, you know, explaining the value that I want to bring to them, because yeah. just asking doesn't usually work, but saying this is the problem, I know you're having this problem. I'm trying to solve that problem. And, you know, people, when you interact with people on a human to human basis, you know, people are willing to give. And so, you know, you don't need $5,000 to do a survey distribution program, you might be able to message people on LinkedIn, or you might be able to find very targeted Facebook groups, you know, for me in the recipe space, I might go to a food blogger group, or I might go to, you know, uh, consumer side people who are looking for dinner recipes group. Yeah. And then you can also, you know, if you're an established business, you're not starting from ground zero, you're not starting from scratch, or your clients, if they have established audiences, you can use your social media channels, you can use an email list, you can use existing relationships that you have in your network. So there are a lot of places that you can, you know, get information for free, interview people for free, run surveys for free. Although you have to keep in mind, is this my target audience? How is this group biased? 
every sample you're going to take is biased in some way or another. So these are people who hang out on Facebook. That might be a completely different type of person than people who hang out offline in, you know, meetup groups. Right. That's so true. That's so true. So what, you know, as, as we're going into the world of market research, maybe for the first time or maybe after a while, you know, what are some of the pitfalls that we can avoid? What, what, what are our yeah. fashion don'ts in the marketing so research world? For, for starters, have a plan. And, you know, in the beginning, you can do explorational stuff and, you know, ask people questions and that's totally fine. But when you're like, I'm ready to take this to the next step, I want to interview people, I want to run a survey, whatever it is have a research plan, you want to know what the business problem is that you're trying to solve, or what data you're trying to collect for a client to publish in press releases. What type of research am I doing? Am I doing qualitative or quantitative? And so qualitative research is going to be asking people questions and getting their their words back. Whereas quantitative, you're going to be getting, you know, asking multiple choice questions, you're going to be asking Likert scale questions on a scale of one to seven or one to 10. Understand what type of analysis you're going to do. So don't do a Likert scale if all you need is a an average or, you know, 50% of people said yes, 50% of people said no, you don't need a scale for that. Um, and then make sure every single question has a purpose and you know exactly why that question is important. Avoid going off script. So those those are important for have a plan and then you're going to get the data that you need back. And having a plan helps reduce some of the biases that you find when you go off script. Yeah. And yeah. We love a plan around here. <laughs> You know, I love that, you know, there are tools like SurveyMonkey mm-hmm. is a free and accessible tool. If you're not comfortable, once you have your plan, writing the actual questions and you're you're a little like, huh, I'm not sure I haven't done this before, and you don't have a resource like SoloPair Pro, then you can go in there and they have templated questions yeah. and, and you'll start to understand like, okay, how to ask things to prevent it. Sometimes they have the exact question that you need and you just maybe need to change the industry. So don't be afraid to take advantage of established tools because even though it's a free tool, it it also has some paid features to it for, you know, more in-depth surveys, but it's still built on survey methodology. So Mm -hmm. that's really helpful. And I mean, there are some ins and outs. I do a lot of data that maybe you don't understand from the layman perspective about how you ask questions and questions that you may not want to ask or questions that seem really intuitive to you that won't get you the information that you need. And and we're not marketing researchers. We're just not, but we do need to have at least a good understanding of how to conduct this kind of stuff. Yeah, and there are a couple of very common pitfalls, like we we're talking about when formulating questions. So things like leading questions, or even leading statements, that's huge. And it's so common. I see this all the time where, you know, I'm going to give a very exaggerated example, and then maybe a less exaggerated example. So you see a poll on Facebook that says, do you love dogs? Answer one is yes. Answer two is no, I'm a terrible person. Like we actually see this kind of stuff on social media and it's just designed for clickbait engagement, but we are telling the person what answer we want because no one's going to say I'm a terrible, even if you don't love dogs, 
you kind of like dogs, you want to be the yes, I'm not a terrible person group, not the no, I am a terrible group person. (laughs) And so you, you also see this in, you know, in surveying. So maybe you're, you're giving a precursor statement, paid placements can be damaging to brand perception. Are you looking for paid or organic placements? Like, duh, they're going to say organic placements if you just told them that paid, and you know, and this is just a made up example. I'm not saying that that's true, but you're leading them to the answer that you want. And so you want to take out that bias that you're inserting in there, take out your own opinion. They don't need to know your opinion because what's valuable to you is what they are authentically expressing to you. And then another very common thing is double barreled questions or questions that you're giving two parts and not giving people the opportunity to answer both of them. So do you want print placements? And does your visual branding align with your brand values? Yes, no. So there's two questions here. Do you want print placements? And does your visual branding align with your brand values? And so when you only give yes, no, you don't know what they're answering. You don't know which part of the question, maybe yes to the first part, no to the second part, maybe yes to both, you know, so it doesn't allow you to get good, clean data. You can't really understand fully what they're trying to tell you and what they're trying to express. And again, these are just examples that I tried to make up, you know, off the top of my head to illustrate, but it's, it's very, it's exceedingly common that you see two part questions where, you know, you, even as a user, you're like, I don't know how to answer this, you know, authentically to both parts of the question. And then leading questions and leading statements are just so rampant and so common in marketing research. Those are actually great examples. Yeah, Um, they are. Yeah. Yes, I did it. (laughs) You did it. Those are great examples. It's hard to think sometimes, especially when you're talking to a certain audience of like, what what would make sense and illustrate? I think that do you love dogs? Yes, no, I'm a terrible person. Anyone who's on social media knows. I mean, you've seen LinkedIn surveys or LinkedIn polls are like just horrific with this. And it's designed for engagement. But when you're doing research, you're not trying to do clickbait. You're trying to get genuine answers. You know, oftentimes, you know, more often than I like to think, you know, you're presented with a survey and you think, well, there's no clear answer to that. Yeah. And that's a big problem for the people collecting that data because, you know, they're not getting your genuine answer. They're getting whatever the kind of the closest, maybe if I understood it, correct answer. Right. Right. Yeah. Let's talk. I know uh, one of the mistakes that, that I've seen a lot is the placement of the demographic question. Mm -hmm. So yes, you're going to have screener questions. And those are, you know, very common, but talk about that for people who may not Mm -hmm. understand that what and where they place those questions could be problematic for their survey. Yeah, it's, it's partly going to depend on your audience. It's partly going to depend on the length of the survey, how you're reaching people. Like ideally you want service to be as short as possible while still collecting the data you need. And that's a very difficult balance to find. And if you go to Facebook groups, maybe you can only get three questions before people are bored and leave. Whereas, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're, you know, sending it through other distribution channels, people will take a three page survey because they're invested in what you're doing. So understanding, you know, what the expectations of your audience is first and foremost can be helpful Asking intimate questions is an easy way for people to drop off quickly. 
it's great to get demographic information up front or some of those st- specific statistics up front in the beginning of the survey because then you're able to apply it to, you know, maybe they answer five out of 10 questions. Well, at least you got those five and know who those people are. But if you're asking, what's your household income or questions, you know, that are uncomfortable to a lot of people, Mm. you can be excluding people because they see that question and then they leave. So, you know, again, understanding your audience, knowing maybe this is going to be a sensitive question, you might reconsider where you're placing it in the survey. Another thing that I see is binary gender questions Mm. of, you know, what is your gender, man, woman, and whatever your personal beliefs are, there are people who don't feel like they fit in either of those categories. Me personally, I don't answer, I I exit immediately because I know it's a bad question and it's excluding people and the data at the end of the survey is going to be no good. Um, So being mindful, questions should be mutually exclusive and collectively exhaustive. And that means that you know, questions don't overlap. So age range of, you know, 18 or under 18 to 20, 20 to 25. Well, if you're 18, which of those two categories that have that number are you going with? So they can't overlap. And then they have to be collectively exhaustive. So if you have age ranges of 20 to 30, 31 to 40, 41 to 50, what about people who are younger than that and who are older than that? They don't have anything to answer there. And so with the example of gender, you know, people who don't fit into those categories, what, you know, they they have no place in your survey and they can either lie and say, I'm a man or a woman. And then, you know, your data is muddied because you're trying to compare gender to, you know, 37% of men. Well, if, People who aren't men answer man because it's kind of the closest answer they can get to. You're not getting good data. Yeah. I think also thinking through, um, we just did this this week with a client survey where we eliminated the gender identity question because Mm -hmm. it wasn't important to our data. We didn't need to slice it and dice it in a way. So, but I think people automatically throw those in because they think Mm -hmm. they're supposed to ask about what region of the country. What is your age? What is your gender identity? But yeah. think of your end goal because that can help to abbreviate your survey as well by being very intentional about what you're asking. Sometimes you don't need that information. You don't need, yep. you're not slicing and di- dicing the data based on income. So if you don't need it as part of your analysis, don't ask the question. It's unnecessary. Yeah. And that's where we go back to the research plan of what is the purpose of each and every single demographic questions included. Does this help me answer the business goal or get the statistics that I need? Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. Well, Annie, you have dropped a wealth of information in our labs today. We're so excited. I mean, this this makes me want to go find someone to need some data. Um, (laughs) I can just speak out about it forever. Well, it makes me want to go cook. So <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Well, it is, it is almost lunchtime as we're recording this. So yeah, that may, that makes sense. So where, where can we find you online? Where can our listeners find you? Yeah. So if you're a foodie and you're actually interested in checking out recipe, our website is just recipe.com. That's R E C I P L E.com. If you want to connect with me personally, if you have questions about marketing research, if you think I would be a valuable addition to your network, you can find me on LinkedIn. I think I shared my LinkedIn URL with 
you yes. too. Um, so we can share it in the show notes or the, yep. the comments or whatever it is. Yeah, we will. We'll pop that in the show notes. And uh, yeah, well, thank you so much for spending your time with us today. We really, really, really appreciate it. This is good, good information that we can use in our everyday and you know, we thank you for your time and we wish you everything, everything good with Recipe. I'm going to check you. it out. Yeah, <laughs> thanks so much. And I hope it, you know, helps someone who thought marketing research isn't for me because I'm not a pro. Like, yeah. I want to make this accessible. You can do it. It doesn't have to be super formal. You can just learn stuff about the people who are in your target market and use that to, you know, better your business. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much. You made the topic so accessible for our listeners. And we appreciate that you took away all of the hard things and challenges. And I hope some people are excited. Also, thank you for advocating for food creators and bloggers. Mm -hmm. You gave me a whole different perspective. Yeah, Yeah. think about it. Yeah, that was how you talk to people. I kept those frustrations off of their pages. I would never bash somebody in their comments, but I (laughs) those frustrations. But now I will look at it through a completely different lens. And so I appreciate learning that and getting yeah. educated because it helps me to, to respect that community yeah. even more. So so thank important. you. Thank yeah, you so likewise. Much. Likewise. Well, thank you, Annie. Thank you our, to our listeners who have joined us either live here on YouTube or who are going to be listening to the podcast. We do appreciate your time as well. And if you got anything out of this, please do share, 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 and join us next time on That's Solo Life. <laughs>